Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, the woman who brought you this. That's the Shirelles singing Dedicated to the One I Love. It's a song from 1959, and it's just one of their many billboard-topping hits. The Shirelles were discovered, as the story goes, by Florence Greenberg, a New Jersey housewife with a penchant for recognizing great pop potential. That would later include the voices of the Isley Brothers, Dionne Warwick, and many others. Florence Greenberg died in 1995. A new musical about Florence Greenberg and the Shirelles has just opened on Broadway. It's called Baby It's You. Music critic Jody Rosen has been a longtime fan of Greenberg's, and he's joining us today on Vox Tablet to talk about some of Greenberg's successes and to give us an idea of where she fits in into the long history of Jews in American pop music. Jody, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks, sir. Great to be here. How did you first hear of Florence Greenberg? You know, I don't exactly remember. I think I must have been um, reading about uh, the kind of Brill Building era in American pop song um, and run across her name. You know, this is the period in the from the kind of late 50s through the mid 60s when uh, so many great American pop songs were being produced in the Brill Building and Office Tower on Broadway in Midtown Manhattan. And um, this was a place that was kind of like the, the new Tin Pan Alley of its era. Um, there were a lot of great Jewish songwriters and producers working out of this building, including, of course, Burt Bacharach and Hal David and uh, Carol Kane and Jerry Goffin and many others, the Lieber, Lieber and Stoller. And uh, Florence Greenberg was sort of a minor figure. She crops up in histories of this period. But um, I'm, I think I must have run across her name and said, Florence who? Never heard of her. And, uh, you know, she just has this remarkable story that really hasn't been you know, sufficiently told until now. Um, I know that, like, if you look on Wikipedia, she has a, she has a tiny little entry. Um, she's really just been relegated to this kind of asterisk in American pop history. But if you start looking at um, the catalog of music that she was behind, it's it's not insignificant at all. And and her story is this, you know, kind of wild uh, version of a Horatio Alger tale. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, as I said in the introduction, the whole kind of tagline for her tale is that there was a suburban housewife in New Jersey, and she discovered the greatest girl group of all time, and then went on to become this, you know, very important female music mogul. How much does the reality match up with that myth? It matches up pretty well. Um, you know, she was she was living in Passaic, New Jersey. She was a kind of a bored housewife. I think her children were all teenagers, or even I think her son Stanley was older than that at this point. Um, and this is in. Uh, 1958, um, and uh, she she was looking for something to do. Um, a friend of her husband's worked at a New York City music publishing firm, um, and she was kind of invited to hang around there to see how she liked the song business. <laughs> um, so she started hanging around at the office and at the at the restaurant downstairs, where a lot of um, presumably grizzled, you know, um, music biz types were hanging out, and she she liked the milieu, and founded her own record label with no prior, with no musical training, couldn't really write or sing, she didn't play an instrument. Um, she started a record label called Tiara, um, and she heard from her daughters about this group of four young black girls at Passaic High School who could really sing. At that time, they were called the Pokellos, I believe is how you pronounce their name. They later <laughs> changed their name to the Honeytones. Uh-huh. But in any case, they'd written a song called I Met Him on a Sunday. Um, and so they kind of auditioned for for Florence, and she said, okay, I'm going to sign you to a contract. I'm going to I'm gonna put, put out this record. 
and she recorded uh, the song. I met him on a Sunday and released it on Tiara Records. It was one of the first, if not the first, record released on that label, and it became a hit. And 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 this was, you know, she did this ha- not having had any experience really um, in the record business before. So she just totally took a chance on this group. She took a chance on this group, and it was a, it was a little bit of a hit. And so Decca Records kind of swooped in, you know, a much larger label, and uh, decided they wanted to work with the Shirelles. So they they bought out the contract from Florence Greenberg, um, but they really didn't know how to promote the group. Um, weren't really comfortable with the sound. What you hear in that on that record, I met him on a Sunday, is is kind of a you know at what at that time was a standard kind of slightly doo-woppy girl group sound. But it was also a very black sound, a very African-American sound. The syncopation of the vocals, the grain of the vocal, the vocal style, um, it felt a little bit harder than kind of standard teeny bopper fare at that time. But anyways, Decca didn't really know what to do with this group. They did a poor job promoting them, and, and Florence thought they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So she bought the contract back and started recording more songs for them and turned them into a real powerhouse group who had a lot of hits. It's kind of amazing. She had no business uh, background, and she became this incredibly shrewd uh, operator in the music industry. Yeah, you know, it's the funny thing about pop music, you know. Pop music is... You don't need a lot of formal training to excel at it. Think of Irving Berlin, arguably the greatest songwriter of the 20th century. You know, he could only play piano in the key of F sharp on the black keys of the piano. Um, didn't really, he never learned to notate music. The Beatles didn't have any formal musical training. I don't think any of them could read music. Um, you know, you don't. It's it's a it's a vernacular tradition, and um, it it there's a, there's a place in pop music for people who are just kind of, you know naturals with a combination of kind of innate musical sense and business acumen, which she definitely had. Did they make her rich and did she make them rich? Uh, whether she made them rich, I don't know. And I would, um, it would not surprise me if she didn't exactly make them rich. You know, there's a, there's a long and problematic history of the relationship between um, people on the business side of music, many of them Jewish and African-American artists. There's a lot of exploitation which has happened there. Uh, as for Florence Greenberg, yeah, she made some money. I mean, I don't think she, she wasn't she wasn't a gazillionaire. This was a this was a, a um, you know, a uh, an independent label. But uh, I, she did very well. What she what she did do though was was also surround herself with good talent. Early on, she hired a, a, an African-American songwriter and producer a guy named Luther Dixon who was um, became kind of a house um, songwriter, a secret weapon for her various labels. She had a series of labels, all of which had kind of uh, queenly names. There was Tiara Records, and then later there was Scepter, which was her major label, another one called Wand. Mm-hmm. So she telegraphed a little of her grandiosity in the, in, the, um, in the names of her record labels. But Luther Dixon had a long relationship with the label and wrote some of the great songs that were recorded by um, the Shirelles and others. Let's talk about another one of their big hits. You pick one. Well, uh, in 1960, Shirelles released a recording uh, of a song called Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. Um, became a number one hit, huge smash. Um, the song's uh, interesting in a, in a number of ways. Um, it was written by the songwriting team of Jerry Goffin and Carole King, one of the great t- songwriting tandems of the period. Um, but this was w- one of their very first hits. 
and uh, and so here again, we see Florence Greenberg, you know, with an ear for an ear for fresh talent. Um, she heard this song. She's like, I gotta have my my girls record this. But that song is also really groundbreaking in terms of its content. Um, you know, it was uh, the lyric was written by Carol Kane, and it really is a um, it reflects a kind of a a, a woman's point of view uh, about sex, a, a frank discussion of sex that we hadn't heard too much in popular music prior to that. Will you still love me tomorrow? It's this is the anxiety of a kind of post-coital moment, um, and I think one of the reasons that the song was such a hit is because it was slightly scandalous. You know, it, it's clear that the narrator is a girl who's unmarried who's Doing it. Uh, who's doing it? But also, um, it really speaks to you know a real uh, a, a, an emotion that a lot of listeners, a lot of female listeners in particular, could relate to. And you know, after all, women, young women, have always been the tastemakers in terms of pop music. They've always been the audience that has been the most consistent record buyers and the ones who have kind of guided popular taste. Um, and it's also a, a, just a beautiful song with a great melody. Let's talk about some of the other talent that she nurtured and discovered. Okay, well, then there's the Isley Brothers, um, who'd already, um, they were already a successful group, and they'd had um, a big hit in 1959 called Shout. In the early 60s, um, this was the period of the the twist craze in pop music. You know, Chubby Checkers, the twist um, was a huge hit, and there were, you know, any number, dozens, possibly hundreds of copycat hits. And so in 1962, uh, Florence Greenberg signed the Isley Brothers to a contract and put out their answer to the twist, which combined uh, the title of their 1959 hit Shout and the twist. The song, of course, <laughs> is called Twist and Shout. And um, it's a great record. Today, it's so, you know, it's such a standard that people might not realize that it was, you know, one of these twist songs. Um, but it's extremely propulsive. It's just a rock and roll classic. When she came across um, talent that was pretty fresh, how did she come upon it? Uh, well, the, the story of Dionne Warwick is an interesting case study. First of all, um, she developed a relationship with the songwriter Burt Bacharach, uh, one of the great songwriters of the 20th century, and her labels were among the first to put out his records, the Shirelles' hit Baby It's You, the song from which the Broadway musical, the current Broadway musical, takes its title is an early Bacharach song. But... Um, she, so she was working with Bacharach, and he brought her a demo of a new song at one point. Uh, this was, I believe, around 1962. Um, she wasn't so interested in the song, which I think annoyed Bacharach a little, but she really loved the sound of the demo singer. The demo singer's role is to actually just sell the song as opposed to you know, sell themselves. Uh, but Florence loved the sound of this singer who turned out to be Dionne Warwick, and she said to Bacharach, get me that girl. And this is an example of her, you know, finely tuned ears because Dionne Warwick is 
one of the great singers of the period. And also, she turned out to be Bacharach's muse, really. I mean, so Florence Greenberg identified Bacharach's muse before Bacharach did. Um, she's a singer who had this gift for conversational style of singing, and Bacharach's songs are quite harmonically complex. They're difficult songs to sing. But Dionne Warwick um, had, had this facility for making them sound as natural as speech, even though they were they're, they're technically difficult. Uh, so she signed Dionne Warwick to a contract right away, and Greenberg's label, Scepter, issued a number of her real classic songs, songs like Walk On By, one of the most beautiful pop songs ever. And, um, and another real important one is the, is the 1968 hit, uh, I Say A Little Prayer, which few people realize today, it, it's not just a, a beautiful love song, but it's also a Vietnam-era song, one of the first Vietnam-era songs, one of the songs, first pop songs to really address the war because the, the dramatic situation in the song is, is a, um, a woman um, addressing her, her lover, her boyfriend, who's, you know, off in the service overseas fighting the war. I say a little prayer for you. You know, she gets up, puts on her makeup. She's thinking about him. The moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. Oh, I'll comb in my hair now, and wondering what dress to wear now. I say a little prayer for you. That's just another example of the kind of not just beautiful and you know sonically interesting music that was that Florence Greenberg put out, but also kind of trenchant um, music that really addressed its its historical moment. Well, that uh, raises a question: What was Florence Greenberg's personality like? What were her politics? Do we have any idea about that? Uh, I I really don't know too much about her politics at all. Um, she's not a woman, as far as I know, who left behind a big paper trail. She does have. Um, you know, children that she left behind. And so presumably I'm, I'm hoping that there's someone who's going to write a book about this woman. And, and I haven't seen the Broadway show, but maybe that's addressed in the show. I know that she was a tough cookie. She was a tough broad and, um, and uh, knew what she liked and didn't like and had a, had a reputation as, um, some, as a somewhat irascible person. As far as her politics, I can only, I, we can only infer from the music that she put out that, um, you know, she was, she was a progressive woman because she worked with, African American artists so well, and 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 also without trying to if, forgive the expression, whiten their sound, or or soften things exactly. I mean, she added a pop overlay to kind of R and B music, but she let her singers sing the way that they wanted to sing, as best we can tell. When you say she was a tough cookie, I wonder how much did that have to do with uh, being a woman in a essentially a man's world? I mean, it must have had a lot to do with it. I mean, this is she really is in that way. She's. A, She's kind of an anomalous figure, right? I mean, there really have not been. There have been great, you know, to say the least, great uh, women performers, songwriters, singers. But um, women have not had a big role on the business end of pop music historically at all. And one can only imagine how in the late 50s and early 1960s, you know, some of the resistance that she she must have met um, in just trying to get things done. On the other hand, she was working in a very Jewish milieu, and um, her story is, in that way, one of the oldest ones in the pop music history books. You know, she's she's the heir to a tradition of Jewish 
psalm business moguldom that stretches back to the 1880s with the founding of Tin Pan Alley. So she's both uh, a figure who's anomalous and also like, you know, a figure who, who stands in this, in this great lineage. I want to talk a little bit about Louis Louis. Now, Jody, you say that this is an incredibly radical pop song. Why? Well, I don't know if it's a radical pop song. I'd say it's a radical pop record. The song itself, you know, is more or less gibberish. It's it's so, in that recording that we've heard, it's so, the lyric is so muddled that people assume that the, the Kingsmen, this little garage rock group that made it, were saying something really dirty. In fact, they, they weren't. What were they saying? Uh... Ask me that question after I Google the exact lyric. Because <laughs> I've never been able it's to. It's Louis, Louis. We gotta go now. Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing about that recording, though, is it was made. It was originally made for a smaller label, um, and it was a really. It's a really cruddy recording. It doesn't sound very good. But Florence Greenberg was savvy enough to know that it sounding bad was an asset. So she, or maybe she was just lazy. Who knows? But she bought the recording out from the smaller label and just released it without trying to make the Kingsman re-recorded or anything. Uh, and this became a huge number one hit. Um, the reason that I say it's radical is it's just, you know, this is the, this you could argue is the first lo-fi recording. You know, at this point in time, uh, re- people tried to make records in the recording studio that sounded good, okay? At this point, a lot of the records that were coming out of um, the Brill Building, for instance, were big pop productions with strings on them, and they they sounded slick and highly professional. Well, this record doesn't at all. It sounds like it was made at you know in a mine shaft, and because of that, it was a huge novelty, you know, and it, and it had a kind of aggressiveness, a sonic aggressiveness, which you could argue paved the way for a lot of subsequent rock and roll, punk rock, whatever. And I think it was visionary of Florence Greenberg to just throw this thing out there. Jody, why do you think now, so many years after Florence Greenberg's heyday, are people taking an interest in her? I mean, the narrative kind of sells itself. You know, as you said before, it's strange for someone who is a, you know, a middle-aged housewife or a woman in her 30s to suddenly just decide to be in the music business and, and succeed with such flying colors. And the idea that so many people are taking an interest... You know, I don't even think that's the case. I think that at least the one person saw the Frankie Valley jukebox musical, went casting about for another story to tell from the same period, and a lit upon Florence Greenberg's story. And and it's a great it's a great story. So what I'm hoping is that this um, this musical will revive interest in her, or you know, engender interest in her that didn't exist <laughs> in the first place, and that uh, and that everyone, including me, will learn more about her as a result. Jody Rosen, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Sarah. Jody Rosen is the music critic for Slate Magazine, and he also is a regular contributor to our site, tabletmag.com. We'd love to know what you thought of our podcast today. Why not post a comment on our site, tabletmag.com, or send an email to podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. As ever, we thank you for listening.